Uh, turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter 3. Uh, this morning, uh, we actually will um, read verses 13 through 17. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you change us? Uh, would you drive fear of man from us and draw us to a reverence and all? And all for Christ who is holy. And we pray this in Christ's holy and matchless name. Amen. You may be seated. So there are, um, you could probably make a list, I guess. There, there are words in the English language that we uh, tend to overuse. Um, certainly in, it's common enough in Christian circles to kind of go, oh, well, the word awesome, we use that word too much. We should save it for God and not use it for, you know, things that are really not all that awesome in the grand scheme of things. Um, but there are words that we use too often. There are words that we use inconsistently. And the word fear is one of those. Just think about it for a second. The hardest part for me about living in Athens, Alabama... I am utterly afraid of tornadoes. They scare me to no end. I grew up with a beach house watching hurricanes, but you get days, weeks of notice. You can kind of watch it coming. You can prepare. With a tornado, you might get minutes. Okay, the conditions, whatever. Warning tonight, there could be, you know, whatever. But when it really comes down to it, I am afraid of tornadoes. Uh, I don't do snakes. Some people are afraid of snakes. Some people are afraid of spiders. To me, I don't see the similarities there. Like, the number of deadly spiders that live here is pretty low. I don't really know why we would be afraid of spiders when, you know, there's a thing called a rattlesnake. Or, I mean, there's actually poisonous snakes out there that could cause trouble. Or we're afraid of dogs or bears but then we turn around and somebody asks us a question and we say, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. Really? Like, I don't think that's the same word. Being afraid of a bear and being afraid I don't know the answer to that, you really don't mean I'm afraid. You just mean sorry or unfortunately or I'm disappointed. But you're really not afraid of that. Think about the way we use the word fear. We use it terribly inconsistently in our lives. I even had a friend uh, growing up in, in Columbia who even to this day had this weird fear that she would die in a 
tidal wave in Columbia, South Carolina. Like, this is the least thing you should be worried about. I just have this fear. I'm going to die in a tidal wave. I guess. No. I'm going to affirm there are fears that are completely rational and completely normal. You should be at some level afraid of tornadoes and 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 wild animals. That I get. But afraid that we don't know an answer to something or or even afraid of things like dying in a tidal wave in Columbia. Check your map. Check your geography. Columbia's not all that close, not close enough to the coast that you should be worried about a tidal wave. There are completely rational, normal explanations for a number of our fears, and there are others that absolutely make no sense whatsoever. And even today, there's now a new fear social media has caused we shorten it to FOMO, but the fear of missing out. Again, not really a fear, more like a disappointment or a sorrow. And what we learn is, and what Peter tells us in this passage is, we need to get our fears right. We fear all kinds of things, some of which make perfect sense, some of which make no sense whatsoever. We need to get our fears right. And that's really the aim. That's really the, the point of this passage. To make sure that we have our fear right. And Peter tells us first that there are things that we really should not be afraid of. Peter, you remember, is writing to... Um, a predominantly Gentile church in what is modern-day Turkey. He calls it Asia, and you can see those regions back in verse 1 of chapter 1. He's writing to believers who have been converted out of the, the, the Roman Empire culture, that Greek sort of culture, that polytheism that says Caesar, the emperor, is a god or like a god or is, is to be added to sort of your pantheon of gods. And he's writing at a time when Nero is the emperor. The same emperor who burned Christians because he needed torches for the parties he had in his backyard. He's writing to a, a culture, a world, a, a group of people, really, that's not all that drastically different from ours. Okay, we're not yet being burned at the stake to light parties for people in power. But culturally, it wasn't what we would call a Christian society. It wasn't what we would call a Christian culture. They were, in first century Roman Empire world, content to let you have your Jesus and they were content to even accept some of what Jesus taught as long as you didn't tell them they had to change or as long as you didn't tell them they were wrong or as long as you just added Jesus and they might even add Jesus to all their other gods, all the other 
people and things that they worshipped. They might have been content to have some of Jesus' teaching. They didn't really want Jesus. That could be said about our world today. We will we'll take some of what Jesus teaches as long as you don't make me take Jesus too. Maybe today more and more they're not just rejecting Jesus, but they're also rejecting the world that Jesus brings or the teaching that Jesus offers us. There seems to be a, a growing uh, animosity towards the kind of world that Jesus gives us. Well, in that world, Christians assume that we will be persecuted. In that kind of a world, we assume that we will face trials and struggles and conflicts. We don't know what might happen to us, what might happen to our loved ones, or what, worse perhaps, what might happen to our children and our children's children. And notice in verses 13 and 14, Peter reminds us that even fear of suffering is the wrong fear. Notice the question in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If, you, if you're pursuing the good, what harm should you expect? It's a fair question. It's, it's a question that makes sense to us. It's a question that, that we even want to ask. Why would we be persecuted if we're zealous, eager for pursuing that which is good and right? You know, there are those people out there. You remember the old Smith Barney commercials? We earn money the old-fashioned old way. Oh, no. We, we, what is it? We get our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. And you had the, the guy that did the, you had to do the voice right. There are people out there, professing Christians, who gain their enemies the old-fashioned way. They earn them. They have bad attitudes. They're... They're pointing their finger at everyone around them. They're looking down on everyone. They're, they they kind of wear their their relationship with Jesus on their sleeve in a way that, that tells everyone who's not a Christian they're idiots and they're wrong and they're stupid. And, and you create enemies that way. And of course, we even think, well, that's terrible. We would never do that. And yet, have you ever thought to sort of utter... Under, mutter under your breath or mumble in the back of your mind. You're around someone who is, might be considered zealous for the good. And in the back of your head is that goody two shoes. And what we really mean is someone who cares about holiness more than I do. There are people who, who earn their enemies who have their enemies gain their enemies the old-fashioned way they earn them but then there are others who yes we know that when we're zealous for doing what is good and what is right those who are opposed to the good just might persecute us they just might want us to suffer they just might cause us harm and pain in this life 
Verse 13 is a bit of a rhetorical question, although it carries with it some truth. We really shouldn't expect persecution if we're zealous for the good. But then verse 14 says, oh, by the way, you just might be persecuted if you're zealous for what is good. There are people who who hate those, who hate what is good. They hate what God loves. They hate what Christ teaches. And as such, they will persecute anyone who is zealous for Christ and His world. But the question, of course, is, why should we fear them? What can those who persecute us, if we are zealous for what is good, what can those who persecute us, what can they actually do? Okay, they can they can kill us. I mean, that, right, that would be sort of the, what we might consider the, the, the worst thing they can do to us is they, they could actually put us to death. And yet Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or as John Knox would say it, uh, with God on his side, man is always in the majority. Or even perhaps you have Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount running through your head already. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even if they put us to death, all they've done is speed up our appearance with Christ. All they've done is hurry us to Jesus. If that's the worst they can do, Maybe, in actuality, the worst they can do is to ostracize you. Maybe the worst they can do is not to kill you, but to leave you friendless, to talk about you at school, to talk about you at work, to talk about and and point at you and, and talk behind your back. And you're reminded all over again, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's where Knox is with God on his side Man is always in the majority helps. Even if we should suffer for righteousness sake, even if we should suffer for following Christ, even if we're persecuted for being zealous for what is good. What is there to fear? We become afraid when we live by sight rather than by faith. What makes us afraid is living by what our bodies perceive rather than the sure and certain and clear promises of God. Peter tells us there are wrong fears. But he also tells us there's a right fear. And again, we use the word fear and we mean, you know, we're afraid of not knowing an answer to a question and we're afraid of a wild bear. Those two things are not the same thing. When the Bible uses the word fear, it does not mean either one of those. 
It actually means something completely different. It means respect, honor, reverence, awe. To, to stand in amazement of. To, to respect and to hold highly exalted. It doesn't mean that we should cower in the corner because we're afraid because God's going to get you. No, it means we revere Christ. We exalt Christ. It uses the, the word fear to mean reverence and awe. Look at verse 15. Notice he calls us, he, though he doesn't use the word fear here, it's the same concept. And you'll, you'll hear, I hope, Isaiah 8, which we just read a few minutes ago, in the back. You're like, wait, hold on. It, this sounds familiar. Notice what he says. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He changed Lord of hosts from Isaiah 8 to Christ the Lord and then left the sentence the same. To honor Christ as holy. To, to set Him apart as, as completely other. It's the same concept as Fear of to revere and and awe to stand in awe of Christ. And then he goes on the part of the verse we know, right? This is the familiar part of the verse. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's the part we know. We know the middle part of that verse. We don't remember the part before or even the with gentleness and respect part after it. Peter says, look, rather than fear persecution, be prepared for the possibility of suffering for doing good. Be prepared for giving a defense. Now, let me just call your attention to a couple of words for a second. Because notice that, first of all, being prepared is present tense in other words you should always in any given moment you might be called to give a defense which means you should be prepared for every possible moment it's a it's present tense which means it's it's ongoing and we're called to be prepared it's the boy scout marching song Which means that doesn't happen at the moment we're persecuted. We don't get prepared the moment we're called to make a defense. We prepare in advance. That's something you do beforehand so that you're ready when the time comes. And we're called to set apart Christ, to honor Christ as holy. And holy is essentially to sanctify or to set apart. It's the same sort of concept. In other words, we're to cultivate an awareness of Christ's holiness in our lives. And to do so, to fear Christ, to hold him with reverence and awe as we prepare to give a defense. And that defense Yes, it carries with it sort of legal defense kind of language or concept as though you were put on trial, but it's not limited to that scenario at all. Exalting Christ 
daily in our hearts will prepare us to make a ready defense when we're called on it. In other words, part of the way we prepare to make a defense is by honoring Christ as holy on a regular daily occurrence, a regular daily schedule. We should always be ready. We should always be prepared to explain, to, uh, to tell people why we have the hope that we have. And then there's that word hope. See, for you and me, hope is really just a future version of wish. See, like right now, I wish I had a piece of chocolate cake. And what I mean is I, I would sure like for there to be one right here that I could be eating. I love chocolate cake. It's not dessert if it's not chocolate. Apple pie is a fruit. But I digress. But if I, if I want that to be at lunch today, I say I hope that I get a piece of chocolate cake for dessert at lunch today. All I've done is taken wish and moved it into the future. That's how we use the word hope. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. It's a confidence in the promises of God as though future events are already guaranteed. They're already a reality. Yes, they're future to us. They're not future to God. And we're grabbing hold of future reality and making that the foundation of our confidence Today, on October 16th, 1555, just outside of Oxford, England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake for uh, affirming salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And Hugh Latimer famously said, called out to Nicholas Ridley as the flames are sort of slowly climbing up his body. Play the man, Master Ridley, and be of good comfort. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Why does someone say that? Standing on... A pile of wood with torches being laid on them. Why, what gives? So it's, it's hope and assurance in the promises of God. Because Latimer is also famously quoted as saying, even as he grew older, it might come in my life, old as I am, or in my children's life, that the saints will be taken up to meet Christ in the air, and so shall come down with him again. He lived in the longing for and anticipation of the return of Christ. And that was a greater joy than the pain and sorrow and suffering of persecution. Notice, by the way, that's not dispensationalism. That's a different view. That's another, another conversation for another day. That's not us taken out of this world and so that all chaos can break loose. It's us running out to meet a returning king who's coming back in victory and then following him back into 
the city. Hope isn't wish. Hope isn't I'd like this to be true. Hope is standing on promises of God as though future events are already a reality. There are wrong fears. There is a right fear, and it is the fear of Christ. And lastly, because there is a right fear, we can live without fear. Notice, first of all, fearing Christ means we can respect other people, verses 15, rather than fear them. We give our defense, we we give our explanation of what we believe and why we believe it, and we do so with gentleness and respect, knowing that they can't do anything to us. And because our hope is that they too will come to saving faith in Christ. You know, that's not really the way the world operates today. The world operates today by lobbing grenades at anybody who has a different view from you on anything whatsoever and calling people names and then calling them idiots and crazy and whatever else we want to call them. That's the way the world operates. We will win no one to Christ with that kind of an attitude. We will win no one to Christ if that's how we treat people who disagree with us. Peter says, when you make that defense, do it with gentleness and respect. And do it with a clear, good conscience. If we treat others with respect, if we have a a clear conscience, conscience, then why would we fear slander? Why would we fear persecution? Why would we be afraid that they will mistreat us on account of Christ? Because the reality is it's not you they hate. It's Christ in you. That's what they can't take. That's what they don't want. That's what they can't stand. He's the one they're attacking. And if he wasn't afraid of the persecution of Satan himself, why should we be afraid of suffering and trials we might face in this life? We can stand with confidence against the insults of this world because Christ has already done it even in the flesh himself. Remember, as, as Hugh Latimer sort of points out to us, you've read the end of the story. You know how everything turns out. You know how it all ends. Jesus wins. The Bible ends, and guess who's victorious? Christ is. And, and you, in Christ, Christ in you, you can't lose. And so we go with confidence and hope, not afraid of the things of this world, because we know that our captain wins. We know that our savior wins. We don't need to fear those who can hurt the body because they can't touch your soul. There are wrong fears. There is a right fear. And because there is a right fear of Christ, we can live in this world without any fear at all. 
May Christ our Savior drive out fear of others and grow us into people who honor him as holy every single day of our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us, for a salvation that's uh, safe and secure in Christ because it is all of your grace and not by our works. If it were by our works, we could lose it. We could change our minds. We could give up. We could come and go as we please. We thank you that, that once in Christ, no one, no thing can snatch us out of his hand. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grow our hope in eternity. Our longing for your rule and reign finally and completely on this earth. When your kingdom is finally and fully established in every aspect. May we live as though that reality were already here in hope and anticipation of that day. And in the meantime, may we gather others to join us, to join with us in eternity. Christ, we pray that we would more and more honor you as holy and so not fear the persecution of man, the suffering we might face in the flesh. Would you guide us Would you drive our anxious fears out from us? We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.